There are uh, several places in the Bible where Christians are told to be imitators. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 11 and Philippians chapter 3, particularly verse 17, the Apostle Paul gives himself as an example. Uh, Sunday school class, this is where the, the verses are at. I was trying to quote to you in Sunday school and I couldn't remember it. It was from my study this week. He says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, as I imitate Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul tells congregations to imitate other congregations. Uh, we need to be careful in doing that. Uh, we need to be careful that we imitate them as they imitate Jesus. Jesus told us to imitate God when He said in Luke chapter 6, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus commands Christians, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here in Ephesians 5, we're told to imitate God. Really. You want me to imitate God. It's the only place in the Bible where we're told to do such. This is a bold statement, right? I don't know about you, but this kind of catches my attention. It's like the Doberman Pinscher, right? Ears stick up, the tail begins to wag. There's something they're focusing their attention on. Be imitators of God. Paul is urging Christians to imitate their Heavenly Father. In chapter 4, verses 25-32, Paul showed the Christians specifically how he is to put off the old way of life and put on the new way of life in Christ. And now Paul sums it up in one broad command calling us to be imitators of God and to walk in love. Just as Christ also loved us and gave Himself for us. Chapter 5 introduces us to the subject of moral purity with a contrast between God's way of love with the worldly way of lust. I use world and lust because the world has no concept of what true love is. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, Paul answers how Christians should imitate God. He gives them three walks. In chapter, or excuse me, verse 2, he says, walk in love. Verse 8, he says, walk in the light. In verse 15, he says, walk in wisdom. You have three walks here to imitate God in these ways. Walk in love, walk in the light, walk in wisdom. But for our text today, you see on your handout there, we are like God when we walk in love. Be imitators of God, and you are like God. You imitate God when you walk in love. Verses 1 through 2, I kind of outline this, this short, concise statements, pure Love, verses 1 through 2. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Once again, we have that word therefore, which points us back to the last chapter, uh, chapter 4, especially verse 32. And there we see kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness, all of which are qualities of who? God. Those are qualities of our Heavenly Father. The word therefore, when connected to the words be imitators of God, along with the Words of verse 2, walk in love, draw out the consequences of verse 32. In other words, be imitators of God and walk in love. And the result is kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. That's walking in love. 
Notice verse 1. In order to imitate God, it says there, we must be what? Beloved children. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, Contrary to popular thinking, listen to me, all people are not children of God. We are children of the Creator in that we are created in His image, but the Bible is clear, we are all not children of God. You read the Bible carefully, and I think that's how people make a mistake. They don't read the Bible when they declare that all people are children of God. It's very clear in the book of John that we are told that those who don't follow God are children of who? The devil. And so, I'm not calling any of you that, by the way. Don't read anything into that. I'm just making the point here. Contrary to popular thing, all people are not children of God. The Bible is clear that we become children of God when we're born into His family through a spiritual birth. And there's no other way into that family. There's no other way to be a child of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 say this, But as many as received Him, Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Who gave you the right to become children of God? God did. When you received Jesus, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Only when the Spirit of God imparts new life to us do we enter into a relationship with God as our Father, and that is only through faith in Jesus. Not only is spiritual birth necessary for being a child of God, but adoption is necessary. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Uh, The adoption picture emphasizes God's sovereign choice of us as His own children. Just as parents who adopt a child pick the child they wish to adopt, so God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, just to stop here a moment and to help someone who may be thinking this morning about this uh, child of God and, and versus not a child of God. If you wonder, how can I know? How can I know that I'm a child of God? How can I know that I'm born again? I would answer it this way. First, do you believe in Jesus alone as your only hope for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life? Is that where you're at? Do you believe that? And do you see evidence that God has changed your life? Those are two things that we can ask the question. Faith in Jesus is the main evidence that you've been born of God. And if He's imparted new life to you, you'll see evidence of that in your heart. You'll have a desire to love Christ, to obey Him, and to know Him more intimately. Notice what He says there. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. If we're we're Christians, if we're beloved children of God... Children imitate their parents, right? Positively and negatively. They, what's the old saying? Like father, like son, right? Children imitate their parents. Fathers and children resemble each other. Not just physically. Children tend to do what their fathers did before them, right? They, they watch their parents. They emulate their lives. They, they do what they do. As God's children, as a Christian, you imitate God, your Heavenly Father. 
That's what we're called to do. We're to imitate Him. Children imitate their parents. And Paul is saying here, Christians are children of God and they ought to bear a family resemblance. You know how that goes. You can look at someone and go, I know who you belong to. What's the old saying? You're a spitting image. I didn't know what that was most of my life. I thought, what does that mean? Somebody explained to me one day, if you spit, that's what came out. And it resembled, oh, I got it. Now that makes a lot of sense. I'm the spitting image of someone. We resemble. We bear the resemblance of family. They're to be imitators of their father. His character is to be seen in our character, in our actions. And how does Paul say that we imitate our heavenly father? Notice what he says in verse 2. And walk in love. That's simple, right? It's simple to say, but it's hard to do. Walk in love. Aren't you glad that He gives us how we do that? How we're to think about doing that? As Christ loved us and gave Himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. To imitate God is comprehensive. It's, it's, it's broad. It's not this narrow thing. And by that I mean imitating God includes speaking the truth. Because He is a God of truth, it includes being faithful in our dealings with others. Because He is a faithful God, it includes being holy in all our behavior. Because He is holy. See, walking in love is not just a concept in our mind. We speak love. We walk in love. Our actions are done in love. But in Verse 2, the characteristic that Paul mentions to sum it all up is walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. To be like God, we must, we must walk in love. And Jesus is the supreme example of love, is He not? He's the perfect example of love. We want to know what love is. We, we say, well, God's a God of love, right? We, we have a tendency to say that, and that's true, even though I think sometimes a lot of people... They're not even in the ballpark when they say God is a God of love, understanding what that means. Paul is telling us here that the love of Christ that that brought Him to the cross is to be the standard, the pattern for the way we love also. What did Jesus do when He went to the cross? What's the song we sang? Jesus paid it all. What's all mean? All. Nothing left out. In order to imitate God's love, we must understand that God is a God of love. John 3.16, we know this verse. God so loved the world. He loved the world to the extent that He gave us His Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Man, that's good news, is it not? You don't want to perish. You want eternal life. And that comes through Jesus. God loved you enough to give His Son to make that possible. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, which will be there in a couple of three weeks. Husbands, love your wives. If it stopped there, you'd be going, tell me how to do that, right? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and did what? Gave Himself up for her. Gave up. Paid it all. Made a sacrifice. Husbands, that's the way we love our wives. Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no man than this, that one day lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid his life down. And in John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus 
tells us that we're to love one another even as He has what? Loved us. And how did He love us, church? He laid down His life. He paid it all. Walking in love. These verses here tell us how to do that. I gave you this definition several, several months ago. It's not original to me. I, I ran across this. And here's the definition of biblical love, God's love, of love that's supposed to come from us. Biblical love, God's love, our love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself by seeking the highest good of the one loved. It's a self-sacrificing. What does that mean? i got to give up something, right? It's going to cost me something. It's a caring commitment. We don't like commitments, do we? Most of us, we, it's kind of like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. It's a self-sacrifice, a caring commitment that shows itself by doing what? You're going after the highest good of that person you say you love. So let me give you a few things here. God's love is costly love. Remember, we're to imitate God by what? Walking in love. God's love is a costly love. God gave us Jesus. Jesus willingly laid down His life for His church. You and I will most likely not be required to actually lay down our lives for other people, right? It's highly possible that that will not, never happen in our life. But love requires that we lay aside selfishness, our pride, our rights, in order to practice God's love toward others. God's love is compassionate. If you, Christian, have the thought... I could care less what happens to someone, then you don't know God. You don't know His love. You cannot say that about people, that you care less what happens to them. You don't love the way God loves. God's love is compassionate. God's love is steadfast. Jesus didn't go to the cross because it felt good. Right? Jesus didn't go to the cross because it felt good. Feelings come and go, right? If you're like me, your feelings change. I mean, man, it could be like the weather in North Carolina, right? One day you got a coat on, the bog, and the next day you got shorts and you're washing your car outside. Feelings come and go, but commitment is what makes love endure. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8 says, Love never fails. Love is a commitment. We stand up in our marriage ceremonies, most of in our mind going, what? Oh, they love each other, right? And Hopefully that's the case. But when they're standing there and they're giving their vows to spend life together, there's a commitment being made, right? A lot of times we miss that part. We live our feelings out. and Commitment... It's something we don't think of. God's love is a visible love. It's costly, it's compassionate, it's steadfast, but it's also visible. It shows itself. In other words, it's not just nice thoughts, but they're actions that come, right? We can tell people we love them all day long, right? But when do they really know we love them? When they do something for us, right? Christ demonstrated for His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, He what? He died for us. God's love is a sanctifying love. This means that love sometimes exhorts, it corrects, 
And it requires consequences for sinful behavior. But I warn you, if you confront a professing Christian who's in sin, you'll very likely be accused of being unloving, even judgmental. But it is unloving to allow people to go on in their sin and destroy their lives. Chapter 5, and in verse 2, it's the fifth time we've seen the idea of walking. We're going to see it again, as I told you, verse 8 verse 15. The word walk implies a step-by-step, slow but steady course of action. It refers to our entire manner of life. The point is, the longer you're a Christian, the more your life should be characterized by godly, biblical love. The longer you live as a Christian, there should be this self-sacrificing, caring commitment that seeks the highest good of the person loved. That will be growing and maturing every day of your life. How do we walk in love? You allow the sacrificial love of Jesus to motivate you. That's how you love. Your feelings don't motivate you, right? Well, they do, to do stupid things a lot of times. But sacrificial love of Jesus is what's to motivate us. Look at verse 2 again. Walk in love. Now, everybody with me, what's the next word? As. What's that mean? Like. As Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The love of Jesus that took Him to the cross, the love that Jesus had for us, is to be the model, the guide for the way we love also. Verse 2, Jesus loved us. So He what? Gave Himself for us. Be imitators of God. Love like God. Love like Jesus. And Jesus did what, church? He gave Himself for what? Himself? He gave Himself for us. Jesus took our sin upon Himself and paid the penalty for our sin in our behalf. The love of Jesus is seen in His death. A death that satisfies the justice and wrath of God against our sin. Which is the meaning of that phrase, a fragrant offering. When you think fragrant, what do you think? It smells good, right? That's not really what it means here. It's a fragrant offering And a sacrifice to God. The idea here is that Jesus giving Himself as your substitute was an acceptable sacrifice to God. And by the way, it's the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God. There is no other sacrifice that brings us into a position of being right before God. Now some application here. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you must come to the cross and trust in Jesus as the sacrifice that atones for your sin and brings you into a right relationship with God. The majority of people, and I don't want to be too general here, but the majority of people at somewhere important time in their life, and you're going to say, well, there's atheists and agnostics. Okay, yes. And by the way, atheists are religious. They believe in something. They have a religion they look at. But if you're here today and you're lost, you have to come to Christ. And trust in Jesus as your atoning sacrifice in order to be reconciled to God. Everyone thinks at some point in their life, am I, where am I, where am I my standing with God, the Creator? We all think that, right? You think about it before you got saved. That was something that crossed your mind periodically, right? Where am I at my relationship with the Creator? Well, if you've not come to the cross, if you've not trusted in Jesus, you're not right with God. 
The bottom line, that's what the Bible says. And here's the application. If, if, you're, if you're a believer today, imitate God. Be like Jesus. Jesus' love was sacrificial. To love as God loves is to love sacrificially. To love by giving ourselves as Jesus gave Himself. You want to know what your standard of love is? You look to the cross. You look to Jesus who gave it all. The key to being a person who's able to be kind and loving and forgiving is that you realize what God has done for you in Jesus. To walk in love is to walk the way of the cross. It's to obey God and honor God. It's giving yourself for the glory of God. Do you hear what I said? It's you giving yourself for the glory of God. You're not loving that person sacrificially, so what? You can pat yourself on the back. It's so you can do what? Point people to the cross. Point people to Jesus. It's the glory of God. And it's for the good of others. And this loving denial and sacrifice. And let me say this as well. To love others means that you commit yourself to the body of Christ, a local church. There is nowhere in the Scripture that gives a person the authority to live their life out from under the accountability and the fellowship of God's people. You can read the Bible all you want and you will not find that. It's easy for us to say we love mankind in general, right? We can say that. But it's, it's more difficult to love the specific individuals in a particular local church, right? We can say we love mankind in general because we don't really know them, right? But we know each other, right? But love is a commitment to seek one another's highest good. This is one reason for church membership. When you become a member of the local church, it's not so you can get a grave plot. It's so you can pour your life into other people and love them. And point them to Christ. To walk after Him. To walk in love. And again, I'm going to say this. Church membership is important. The local church is important. Verses 3 and 4. Counterfeit or perverted love. I couldn't figure I couldn't decide which word to use. You just... Pick the one you like best and that's, that'll be fine. Counterfeit or perverted love. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talking, nor crude joking. Listen to this. Which are out of place. But instead let there be thanksgiving. Pay attention that verse 3 begins with the word but. Drawing a contrast with the command to walk in love. Just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, Paul wants to make it clear that the love to which Christ calls us stands in stark contrast to the lust of a pagan world. There is a vast difference. Paul uses six terms here to refer to sins that saints or those who belong to Christ must not practice. And we'll run through these kind of quickly. Sexual immorality. The Greek word is the word pornea. It's where we get our word pornography, which refers to any type of sexual immorality. It includes premarital sex, extramarital sex, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, and the use of pornography. Any sex outside of a lifelong commitment of marriage between a man and a woman is not rooted in love. I didn't say that. that's what the Bible says. It's not biblical love, but it is lust. 
Do you hear what I said? Anything outside of a marriage commitment between a man and a woman is not love. It is lust. It's sexual immorality. Sex outside of marriage, listen to me, is using the other person for your gratification. That's all it is. You're using that person. And that's lust. That's not love. Impurity. The word... Man, this, once you figure out what this word means, it'll kind of... It'll turn your stomach. It means dirty or impure. It was used to refer to what comes out of an infected wound. You ever seen one of those? Not a pretty sight, right? In the moral realm at first, that which is which infects others and is repulsive or disgusting. Paul used it in chapter 4 verse 19 to refer to the ungodly behavior of Gentiles. He said, who had given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Which leads us into the next thing. I have a hard time saying this word, so if you hear me going back and forth using the word greed, you'll understand. Covetedness. It's interesting that Paul lists covetedness or greed right beside sexual sins. And then in verse 5, he links it to idolatry. Greed is motivated by selfish pleasure apart from God. It's idolatry because it seeks to find pleasure in something other than God while rejecting God's commands. And again, I'll say this. Sex outside of marriage is always based on greed because its goal is to use the other person for your advantage. That's what that is. You're using that person to meet a need or a sin gratification in your life. In case you're thinking these subjects are debatable... They're not. Paul says these things, notice what he says, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints or the church. What does he say there? Must not. What's must not mean? It can't happen. They can't be there. It says not even named. It does not mean that they're not to be talked about. After all, Paul wouldn't be talking about them if that's what it meant. Instead, it means that these sins should be unknown among Christians. They should not be able to look at a Christian and see that going on in their life. Not even named. These sins should be unknown among Christians. Let me give you an application right quick. We should not feed our minds on these sins by watching movies and TV programs and even reading books that describe these things. Have you noticed, I would say recently, but everything you see on TV, there's these innuendos, right? And there's not a program that you can turn on anymore that doesn't have some kind of sexual thing going on. And have you noticed where most of that's occurring? Where the predominant majority of it's occurring? Outside of what? A sexual relationship between a man and a woman. You ever notice that? They, they hardly ever show that going on between a husband and a wife on TV. Which I don't need to see it on TV, no way. And neither do you. But we should be not feeding our minds with those things. Number four, filth. And this refers to indecency or obscenity or something that's shameful. Foolish talk. In the Bible, uh, in case you're wondering, a fool is not someone who is mentally deficient. That's not what that means. But rather it's someone who's morally deficient. Not mentally deficient, but morally deficient because he ignores God's Word. 
In this context, Paul is referring to speech that disregards or makes light of God's moral commandments. And then this last one, crude joking. Some of you have translations that use the word jesting. The word means to turn easily. It has the idea of someone who uses clever words with a double meaning. So he, he can turn something into a, a dirty joke. Example, stand-up comedians and TV sitcoms. Christians should not, listen to me, we should not joke about sex for the same reason that we should not joke about God because that is a sacred subject because God created that. The sexual relationship should be reverenced among God's people, not degraded and not made light of. Does that make sense? I know that gives some of you problems. We shouldn't talk about sex in church. But I'm going to tell you something, parents. If they don't hear it here, they are going to hear it. And you don't want them hearing it out there. You want them hearing it in here or in the home. Notice verse 4. Which are out of place. You tie that together with must not be named and is proper among the saints. And here's what you have. These sins cannot in any way be justified and they are not to be tolerated. You cannot justify them. Oh, I love him. No, that is not love. That is lust. They're not to be tolerated. Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, is saying Christian is not to behave in such a way in the Christian church. And our behavior as individuals in that area has consequences for the whole church. You can't do these things, not only without harming your present life or your future life, but you can't do them without harming the whole congregation. So it's the business of the church when any part of the body is unfaithful in these areas. It is the business of the church. Verse 4, But instead, let there be thanksgiving. That sounds kind of odd after coming after all this stuff, right? Verse 4 says that the alternative to sexual immorality and greed is to do what? Give thanks. <coughs> You're probably thinking, what does thankfulness have to do with moral purity? Are you thinking that right now? Can I tell you something? Thankfulness is a cure for, a, for sin. It's a cure for what, Sunday school class? Worry, right? It's a cure for worry. God has given the Christian everything he needs. The Christian does not need to go looking for substitute gods for pleasure and joy. If you are grumbling or complaining, you're really saying that you know what's better for you than God does. If you grumble about being single or about being married to the wrong person, you're not just complaining about your circumstances, but you're really complaining about God's goodness and wisdom in the aspects, these aspects of your life. And the same goes for discontentment in your financial parts of your life. Let me give you an example. Eve. Thankfulness versus disobeying God. Now, Eve wasn't involved in a uh, sexual immorality as we've been talking about here, but the idea is disobeying God. Eve. Satan tempted Eve by getting her to doubt what? God's goodness. And withholding the fruit from her. You remember him doing that? Here's the way we would say it. He don't really love you or he'd let you have that. 
When she believed Satan, what did she do? She yielded to sin. Satan will use the same ploy to tempt you to fulfill your sexual desires in disobedience to God. Thankful for what you have. Not looking for something out here that God has not given to you. That's the point. And let me say this. This has been kind of thick, if you will, or kind of heavy going through this. Here's what I want to tell you. God's love forgives these sins. It forgives all sins. Right? God's love forgives these sins. It forgives all sins. But forgiveness comes only when there is repentance. What do you do if you're caught in these sins today? You repent. And you trust in Jesus. What should we, the church, do when someone repents? Say it with me. We forgive them, right? That's walking in love. When people repent and turn from their sin, we acknowledge the forgiveness that we've received in Christ for our sins and we show that same grace toward them. We forgive them. Verses 5-7. through seven. <clears throat> Perverted love or counterfeit love leads to punishment. Verse 5, For you may be sure of this. What's Paul saying? You know this for certain. Paul is saying there should be no doubt or confusion about what he's about to say. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It only makes sense that there will not be sexually immoral, impure, or greedy people in heaven. It wouldn't be heaven if they were there. Whatever a person may claim, those who choose to go absolutely against the commandments of God are giving evidence to the fact that they do not know God. While it's true, listen to me, while it's true that Christians can fall into these sins, right? Yes. No genuine Christian can continue in such sins. They may fall into them, but they can't continue in them. That's not my idea. That comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul says, don't let anyone, what? Deceive you with empty words. Empty words refers to that which is without truth. Don't be deceived by such things. Why? For because of these things, what he just talked about in verses 3 through 5. Because of these things, what does it say next? The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't be deceived Because the end result is what? God's wrath. God's judgment. And here's where some people will go, Oh, wait a minute. God's a God of love. He would never do nothing like that. Again, read your Bible. There are those who will say, including Christian leaders, you're under grace. God's a God of love. He will not condemn you. He understands your weakness. Here's my response to that. Chapter 
and verse. Give me a chapter in the Bible and give me a verse that says that. The phrase, sons of disobedience, refers to those who, whose lives are lived in disobedience. That, well, that makes sense, right? Not to those who have fallen and repented. If someone professes to be a Christian but their lives, that person lives life in habitual disobedience to God's moral standards, it is evidence that he has not been born again. And you may be saying, you're judging. No, I'm not. I'm going to quote you from the Bible again. First John chapter 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Let me stop there. Do Christians fall into sin? Yes. Are Christians to practice sin, have a lifestyle of leading that? No. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him. In other words, when you're saved, God is in you. You can't do those things continually. You can't practice them. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That's pretty clear, right? Can't keep on that way if you know God. Verse 6, notice what it says, The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Unless a person truly repents, they face eternal wrath and judgment. If someone continues in rebellion against God, they give an indication that they may be, I'm going to use the words may be, that they have never become a genuine follower of Christ and they face God's judgment. Can I tell you something? I wish these things weren't in the Bible. I wish God wasn't a God of wrath and judgment and punish people. You know why I say that? Because I don't want people dying and going to hell. That's why. Out of God's love, out of His holiness comes love. And God can't be a God of love unless He's a God of judgment and punishes what is not love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul makes a, another similar statement. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolater, nor adulterer, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You're going, at this point in time you're going, this is awful, this is terrible, right? But if you read verse 11, and such were some of you. He's talking to Christians. You used to be these things. What's the difference? But you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. Some of us sitting here today that profess Christ, we were some of these things, right? But what happened to us when we trusted in Jesus? He what? He washed us. He sanctified us. He set us aside and made us holy and He justified us. He says, you are right with God, all in the name of Christ and by the Spirit of God did that happen. Verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. This is a warning. Let me say that again. This is a warning. Them refers to the sons of disobedience who are under God's wrath in verse 6. Don't partner. Don't share with them in their sin. The idea is that of taking part in the worldview and conduct of those who are disobedient toward God. And according to the Bible, to do so is contrary to with membership in the people of God. 
Verse 7 is clear. Don't become partners with them. So here's what we want to say. Christian, don't imitate the world, but imitate who? God. And you can do that if you know Jesus, because the Spirit of the living God lives in you and has transformed your life. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old is passing away, and the new is coming. Don't imitate the world, imitate God. As children, walk in love, and speak the truth in love. You have the living God as your Savior today. The Creator of this world is your Savior. He's, he's more satisfying than sexual sin or greed. I know for some of us that's hard to believe. But God is more satisfying than the things that are listed in verses 3-5. through five. He's a God worthy of endless thanks. Worship God alone. Don't look for cheap substitutes. And let me say this to Christians as well. When you're sharing the Gospel with people, God is a God of love, right? Jesus died for your sins. He lived the perfect life in your place and He rose from the dead so that you could be saved. Walking in love is warning people. It's speaking the truth. That that is not automatic for their lives unless they turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. They face what church? The judgment and the wrath of God. Be like you're going to the doctor. Him saying, hey, you got cancer, but don't worry about it. Just kind of keep doing what you're doing. We're not even going to treat you. What would you do? I, I'm leaving here and I'm going to get me another doctor. Right? The same thing with you sharing the gospel with people. You need to be very careful. Point them to God's love, but God is also a God of judgment. If you don't turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you face God's judgment. And it may be that some of you here this morning, you hear... This alarm that Paul is sounding and you're hearing it loud and clear. If you walk in the way of the world, it will lead you to the world's tragic end. But if you can hear God's Word warning you and calling you to repentance, well then there may still be hope for you today. Let's pray.